It can be hard to know what to say to someone who is suffering. I know. I get it. When we know someone who's experienced loss or when they express their pain to us, we feel this, this chasm between life as it should be and life as it is. And, and in that chasm, there's tension and there's vulnerability and there's awkwardness and there's hurt. And when we feel all those things, we want to do something or we want to say something to try to make it better. And when we hear someone that we care about being in pain, we want to fix it. And if we can't fix it, at least we want to say something that is helpful. So we try. And unfortunately, sometimes we miss the mark. And when we miss the mark, it can be incredibly painful for someone who's already in a lot of pain. Now, I learned this up close and personal when a dear friend of mine experienced the death of her mother. It came about a week after her mother had been in the ICU. Her mother was only 70 at the time, and so should have had lots more life left to live. And I was privileged to be beside my friend during that long week while her mother was unconscious, and to be at the bedside when my friend decided to have the ventilator turned off, and we watched her mother take her final breath. A few days later, as we were making funeral plans, my friend decided to share the news outside of her most intimate circle, and so she posted on Facebook about her mother's death and the gratitude that she had over her mother's life. And it was a beautiful and a heartfelt and a touching post. And a lot of people responded beautifully, saying simply, we love you and we're thinking of you. But some people, some people just could not help themselves and said some really unhelpful things. Easily the worst was a friend who posted, we know just how you feel. We just put our dog down yesterday. Y'all, I love dogs. And my friend loves dogs. But the death of a dog and the death of a mother are not the same thing. My friend was appalled. She was angered. It could not have, done, uh, could not have brought her less comfort than it did. So here is a pro tip from your pastor. If you are trying to comfort someone who's grieving, don't bring up your dog or your cat. Or actually, don't even compare your grief to theirs in any way. Even if you lost your mother a month before, there is no guarantee that your grief is like their grief. Maybe your relationship with your mother was completely different. Maybe their deaths were completely different. When we're trying to comfort someone in grief, it's best to just stay away from comparison altogether. We don't have to compare griefs in order to be comforting. Now, we're spending a few weeks here talking about the reality of suffering in human life and seeing what our faith has to teach us about it, about how we deal with suffering in our lives and in the world. Last week, we talked about the beginning at the book of Job. We're using Job for this whole series, and we talked about the beginning last week where Job suffers a tremendous amount of loss. He loses all his livestock. He loses all his children. He loses his health. And after all this calamity falls on Job, all his wealth and his status and health are stripped from him, he has three friends that come to visit. And at first, these three friends, Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar, they seem like really good friends. Because as soon as they hear of his trouble, they rush to see him. They go specifically to console and comfort him, the scripture says. 
They see him and they see the terrible state he's in and they weep and they tear their clothes and they sit with him in his pain. For a whole week, nobody says a word. Now, if they had stopped right there, things might have been fine. But that's only chapter two of the book. So after a week of sitting in silence and reflecting on this magnitude of Job's losses, Job, he actually speaks first. When we start reading in chapter 3, we hear Job lament, lament that he's even ever been born. He says, I wish I had never been born. And that's completely understandable. It's a normal thing to say when someone is in deep grief. But that moment that Job speaks his pain out loud when it's made somehow more real and more present to his friends by him saying it, well, then the friends end their silence and the speeches begin. And what they want to do is make sense of the tragedy. They want to find an explanation, either for Job or just for themselves. So they take turns for the rest of the book trying to explain Job's situation and why he's suffering so much. Now, another tip about the book of Job, don't feel the need to remember which of the three friends says anything. They all basically end up making the same argument before the book is over. Not one of them is distinguishable from the rest. Now, there might be a time that a friend of yours needs you to help them process their loss. They need to ask questions about it. They need to think about how life can be so hard. But, and that's good to think along with them and talk through them with that kind of thing if we can. But, but that's not what Job's friends do. They don't think along with him. Instead, they argue with him. And more specifically, what they begin to do is question his character and his behavior. One friend says it like this. Who that was innocent ever perished? It's basically, what innocent person was ever punished? Or where were the upright cut off? As I have seen those who plow iniquity and sow trouble, repeating a certain kind of theology. Now, they're not yet attacking Job directly, but they are repeating a certain kind of theology, a certain worldview that basically says, if you're suffering, it must be because you deserve it. And we can understand where this kind of thinking comes from, right? We know that God is good, we know that God loves us, and we know that God is powerful. So why would God let bad things happen to good people, people that God loves? This is a very difficult theological question to which the Bible gives us no perfect and easy answer. We're going to hear an answer from the book of Job next week. But for now, the people in the story are stuck with this important question. Do bad things happen to good people? And if so, why? How can it be that when God loves us, bad things happen to us? Job's friends answer with the perspective that it must be because the person who's suffering did something to deserve it. Now, that is a tempting answer to give because it's simple. And it keeps us from having to ask hard questions about how God works in the world. If we say that God rewards the good and punishes the bad, then we don't have to think very deeply about who God is. And we don't have to worry about whether or not we will suffer. In this worldview, it's very easy. To avoid suffering, all you need to do is be good. If you're good, you don't have to worry about suffering. If you're holy, if you're righteous, if you are all those things, nothing bad is going to happen to you. It's a tempting worldview. Do you think it works? No. It doesn't work. It doesn't work. 
When we look at the world where people we know who are good and kind and loving experience so much more trouble than they deserve. It doesn't work. When we look at Christian history and we see all these stories of people who follow God with the utmost faithfulness and they still experienced extreme illness or loss or grief. I think about somebody like Oscar Romero, a priest assassinated because he fought for the poor. It doesn't work when we look at the Bible where where even the people who are closest to God, like take the Apostle Paul, endure so much. It's a worldview that doesn't work when we look at Jesus. I mean, he suffered. uh, He was beyond our ability to be righteous, and yet he suffered death on a cross. Jesus took on the most suffering that a person could suffer, and he was sinless. And yet God loved him with an everlasting love. God did not protect even God's own son from suffering, but what God did was resurrect Jesus from the dead to show us the ultimate power God has to heal and renew and resurrect us. Now, Job's story is another place in the scripture that challenges this idea that only the good get rewards and only the wicked get punishment. Job refuses to accept the idea that he did something to bring about his suffering. He maintains his innocence, but his friends, they are stuck in this simpler worldview, this simpler theology. They keep trying to convince him that he must be wrong. One tells him to repent and says, Know then that God exacts of you less than your guilt deserves. I mean, what kind of friend is this? He's saying, Look, I know things are bad, but you are so awful. You are so sinful, it should be worse. Be grateful that God hasn't punished you more. Repent. Kay Bailey can't stand it. She's about to die over there. It's the worst kind of theology. This, by the way, saying something like that, that's even worse than bringing up your pet, okay? Over and over again, his friends make the same arguments, saying that God punishes the wicked. It's the wicked that suffer. Job's wickedness must be so great, human beings cannot be righteous. For almost 30 chapters, his friends do a terrible job of comforting him. And then Job points that out to them. That's that second part of the scripture that Diane read for us. He calls them miserable comforters. He says that they are trying to make themselves feel big by making him small. And he says to these ones who have come to be with him, how long will you torment me and break me in pieces with your words? Now, these are obviously not the kind of friends that we want to be. We don't want to be friends that add to someone's pain when we're trying to comfort them. That's why we don't ever want to say to somebody something like, God wanted your loved one in heaven. Or even, we don't really want to say, isn't it better that they're not in pain anymore? Because those are the kind of things that might make us feel better. But if we're the ones that say them to someone in deep grief, it might feel to them like a slap that adds to their pain instead of reducing it. So here are my pastor tips for how to be present to someone who's in pain. If you don't know what else to say, say something like, I see that you're hurting and I care about you. Like just say that (laughs) and that's enough. If you love them, say, I love you. If you're sad, say, I'm sad that this hurts so much. Say, I'm thinking of you, and I'm here with you. That's, that's all you need to say, honestly. You don't need to explain it. You don't need to try and make it better. 
You don't need to try to brush the hurt off. You don't need to try and make them laugh. You don't need to quote scripture to them. You don't even need to say anything theological. If they say something about God, then okay, you can talk about God. But we want to be careful to not imply that if they had more faith, they would be less sad. Because grief and faith can go hand in hand. And sometimes our grief challenges our faith, and that's okay. We're going to talk about that next week. God can handle it. Your job as a friend is not to make it all make sense as much as you might want to. Your job is just to be with them and let them know they're not alone. And we do that by just saying, I care about you. I'm sad this hurts so much. I wish I could make it better. I'm here. One other thing I would implore you to do as people who love God and want to love the people in your life who are suffering, don't avoid them. I once had church members who joined the congregation I was serving a few months after losing their son to a a freak accident. His funeral had been huge. Hundreds and hundreds of people had come, a, a a huge chunk of their small town, and they were overwhelmed by support and care. But then, as the weeks and the months went on, they noticed the relationships in town subtly began to change. They were still in deep grief, of course, processing this loss of a precious child. But the people around them, the people in town, they seemed to want to move on. And they noticed their conversations changed with people. And then they noticed that people were obviously avoiding them in the grocery store like turning to go the other way down the aisle so they wouldn't have to come and talk to the grieving parents. And it was so hurtful. So don't avoid the people in your life who have suffered loss. Be there for them and keep showing up for them, even when it takes a long time for their pain to get better. Your steady, your trustworthy presence is the most loving thing that you can do. It's the thing that most resembles the love of God, God who never abandons us in our moments of trial and hardship. A few years ago, I was at Church of the Resurrection in Kansas City and got to hear a presentation by a member of Resurrection named Mindy Corporon. Now, Mindy, her name might be familiar to you. She lost both her son and her father when they were shot in the parking lot of the Jewish Community Center in suburban Kansas City. This was in 2014, and William Corporon was taking his grandson to a class at the community center, and they were both gunned down by a white supremacist who had driven to Kansas City specifically hoping to kill Jewish people. Neither Will nor his grandson, Reed, were Jewish. The only thing that I remember clearly of Mindy's presentation was her saying how much she really loved it when people asked her about her son. Now, I heard her speak several years after their deaths, and she said that she found people were often afraid to bring up Reet's name, her son's name, because they didn't want to remind her of his death and cause her pain. She said, I think about Reet every single day. Someone saying his name is not going to somehow make my pain uh, more present to me or remind me that my son died when I had forgotten. She said, I actually like it when people ask me about Reet because it gives me the chance to talk about him. It allows me to share with him what a special person he was and to talk about how close he feels to me right now and what I've been remembering about him lately. It's not an easy thing to be a friend to those who suffer. 
It's so much easier to say something trite and then walk back to our own lives that feel safe and secure. But if we want to be like Jesus, we will show up for people in their moments of pain. We will sit beside them as they cry. We will not give them easy answers. We will love them through the hard and trust that answers will come for us all when we get to see God face to face. This week, I want to encourage you in two ways. If you right now are in a moment of hard, if you're suffering from a grief of some kind, I want to invite you to reach out to someone in your life who can be the opposite of the kind of friend that Job had. Make contact with someone that you trust to be your companion in the hard moments and share with them how you're doing. It might be a friend, a family member, a pastor, hint, hint, or a therapist. If you are not suffering under a load of grief right now, I want to invite you to reflect back to someone who was a good friend to you when you did go through trial or hardship and reach out to them and tell them thanks, even if it's been a long time. Share with them what they did that was so helpful and meaningful and say thanks to them for just being a good friend. May God grant us all the wisdom to be present to those who suffer, trusting in God's presence to be with us no matter what comes our way. Amen.